text today is Exodus 12, verses 1 through 14, the beginning of the account of the Passover. Listen, please, to the reading of the Word of God. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household be too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons. According to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it up until the fourteenth day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the houses in which they eat. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire, with unleavened bread and bitter herbs they shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roast it with its head, with its legs, and its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it, with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. And you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night. And I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This day shall be for you for a memorial day. And you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. As a statute forever, you shall keep it as a feast. And to the reading of the word of God, let us all say, Amen. And you may be seated. On the last Sunday of every month, I usually try to preach about the family. But this April, Don and I have devoted our sermons to the great theme of redemption. Since this is the, the month of Holy Week. We kind of called it Holy Month, didn't we? So rather than choose between the two, family and redemption, I've decided to preach on both. Both today. Redemption and the family. Specifically, a lamb for a household. Of course, I must be talking about the Passover, right? From Moses' account of this first Passover, we learn great truths about both of those things. We learn about God's way of saving us. And we learn how important the family is in that plan. Now, before we learn important truths from the Passover about household salvation, we need to learn some important truths from the Passover about salvation. So there are two parts to this message. Listen carefully. The Passover, you know, was one of the most important events to the Jews. In fact, the only other event that really could even be considered as important is the Day of Atonement. You know what the Day of Atonement is? Once a year, the shedding of blood and going into the the high priest going into the most holy place. Now, both of these teach some very basic truths about salvation. 
And here are those truths. We are all sinners. Everybody knows that? We're all sinners. God judges sin. His final judgment on sin is death. And the only way to be rescued from God's judgment is for something or someone to die in our place. That is the only way. In other words, there can't be any salvation from judgment unless God's justice has been satisfied by the shedding of blood, which in the Bible is a symbol of violent death. Now think about the Passover for a moment. God predicted the Jews would be enslaved in Egypt for 400 years. He raised up Moses. He raised up Aaron to lead them out of Egypt. And he sent these massive, frightening plagues on Egypt because Pharaoh refused God's commandment to uh, liberate the Jews. And Pharaoh would repent and then he would change. By the way, this is proof that God's judgment doesn't always lead people, or even most of the time, lead people to repent. If, think about that. If God would just send judgment, everyone would turn to God. They would turn back to Him. Is that true from the Bible? Oh. Oftentimes God sends judgment many times, and people still go back to their sinful ways. That shows how deeply entrenched that sin is in the human heart. It's only the grace of God, by the power of the Spirit of God, that can produce repentance. Judgment's important, it's vital, but only the grace of God can cause repentance. Well, the Egyptians paid a very heavy price for uh, Pharaoh's rebellion, just as we today pay a heavy price for our political leader's rebellion. So finally, God brought the hammer down. And in Exodus 11, God told Moses to go to Pharaoh and to have a little message for him. At midnight, Pharaoh, I'm traveling through Egypt. I'm going to come visit you, Pharaoh. I'm going to visit every house. And I'm going to kill every firstborn in the house, from man to beast, the very wealthy people, the very poorest people, in every family, starting with your family, Pharaoh. And God predicted to Moses that even with that, even with that horrific threat, even with that threat, Pharaoh, in the end, wouldn't listen. And guess what? God was right. God is right. And he didn't. Now, <coughs> a couple of truths. God wasn't just leveling his judgment on the Egyptians when this happened. He was also leveling his judgment on the Jews. Now, I'd like you to consider this very carefully. As far as human sinfulness is concerned, there was no difference between the Jews and the Egyptians. Do you understand that? They were all sinners. They were all under God's judgment. Somebody says, Andrew, but they were God's specially chosen people. He said, I'm going to bear you up on eagle's wings, he later said. He called Abraham and gave him all these promises. Couldn't God just sort of spare them and pretend as though they were totally different? But the fact is, they weren't totally different. They were just as sinful as the Egyptians. The Jews weren't exempt from God's judgment just because they were God's chosen people. They had to suffer the consequences for something or something did, and that meant death. For the, in the case of the Egyptians, they had to die. Because they, in the form of their representative, Pharaoh, had sinned. That's why all the firstborn had to die. The firstborn children, the firstborn animals, were representative, covenantal, just as Pharaoh was a representative. Now, do you understand? 
In killing the first, firstborn, God was symbolically killing everyone. God often does things representation. You understand that point? He was saying, I'm delivering my judgment, I'm leveling my judgment on all of Egypt, but rather than kill every single person, I'm going to kill the firstborn as a representative of the fact that all of you deserve death. Pretty frightening. Now, <clears throat> we need to think very hard about what this judgment teaches concerning God's character. We really need to think hard about that because we have a very false views today about God's character and about human sinfulness. I want you to think about this. God created man and woman to share in the fellowship of God the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit. Jesus says that plainly in John 17. That's why Jesus came, to restore that glorious fellowship that he and the Father and the Spirit had before creation. God loved to commune with Adam and Eve in the garden. He would come down, the Bible says, sort of in the cool of the day and commune with them. Uh, just as he loved to commune with us, living our lives in communion with the triune God and, and fulfilling his stewardship of this creation. That's what man was created for. Now, when man turns his back on God, he turns his back on the very reason for his existence. Would you like to know why the world is the way that it is out there? Drenched in violence and drenched in addiction and drenched in hatred for one another and drenched in theft and drenched in lust and men abusing women and women lying to men and, and perverse political leaders. Would you like to know why the world is in the shape that it's in? Would you like to know? I can tell you exactly why. Because man has turned his back on God. That's why. That's why death is the penalty for sin. When we turn our backs on God, when we rebel against him, there's no good reason to go on living. Now, that may seem like a very hard verdict, but that is the Bible's verdict. And the only reason that God allows sinful man to keep on living temporarily is because God is a God of grace and he wants man to what? Repent. By all rights, God could just kill us all. But he doesn't do that because he's a God of grace and he wants to give people time to repent and believe and hear the gospel. Sin deserves death because sin is the opposite of God's intention for us. So, now you understand, I hope. When God destroyed almost all of mankind with the flood, when God killed the firstborn of Egypt, God wasn't being a cruel God. He was making sure he would fulfill his original intention for man, to commune with him. Now, the great evil of sin is that it breaks that communion. That's what sin does. Sin breaks that communion with God. It breaks communion with God because God is a righteous God. Now, that term righteous is pretty easy to understand. It basically means in the right. God is always righteous. God is always in the right. Now, when we sin, we're in the wrong. And if God didn't judge sin, he would be indifferent toward the wrong. But God is not just righteous. He has, if I may say so, sort of a burning, white-hot righteousness. God shows up and people, when God manifests himself and shows himself to people in the Old Testament, almost always, what do they end up doing? Does he march up to God and say, I'm really glad you came down here. I wanted to have a chat with you. 
I have a few complaints. I don't like the way you're running this job. Is that how they respond when God manifests himself? You know what happens to them? They like fall down flat. Not just because of his power, though that certainly is true, but because of his white-hot righteousness. He is a righteous God. As a righteous God, he can't be indifferent towards wrong. That's another way of saying God's a God of justice. It means he can't commune with people who are unrighteous, people whose entire orientation to life is different from ours. Now, in a human way, I was thinking this week, I think you can understand that. Have you ever met and tried to have a conversation with people with whom you have almost no common interests? First of all, and most importantly, let's say they're not a believer. It's not that you don't like them. It's not you're not interested in them. Let's say that you like uh, surfing, or you like reading, or you like writing code, or you like sports, or whatever, and you have almost nothing in common. You know, you talk for about two minutes, or three minutes, and think, okay, now, I'm just, what, I mean, anything I want to talk about, they're not really going to be interested in. That's kind of a small microcosm of God's relationship with sinful man. God can't commune with sinful man because God's a holy, righteous God. And what God considers important, what God considers central, unbelievers consider what? The stainful. I don't want to talk about that. You want to talk about righteousness. You want to commune with me. I don't want to do that. I want to do what I want to do. See? And that's why God can't commune with unbelievers the way they are. They have to be changed. That's what salvation is. <clears throat> now, here's the problem. Since man's a sinner, since man's turned his back on God, since man and God no longer have common interests, if I may use that, man's in a big predicament. How can man be righteous so that he can come back and commune with God? We already see that in Exodus 12. A basic answer, at least. We can't make ourselves righteous in God's sight. That's really tough. We can't make ourselves righteous. We're so sinful. We can't make ourselves righteous. We can't do it. God himself has to, I'm going to make a verb out of this because it actually is in the Hebrew. God has to righteous us. God has to righteous us. He does this by leveling his judgment on a substitute. At Passover, that substitute was a, a pure, spotless lamb. The Jews killed the lamb. The Jews ate the lamb. And they sprinkled blood in the door of their house. Now, let me talk about that quickly. First, God had the Jews kill the lamb, because the penalty for sin is what? Death. He leveled his judgment on the lamb, so he wouldn't level it on the firstborn in the Jewish house. That's the only way that God could rescue the Jews. And by the way, any Egyptians that wanted to join Israel, and some of them did, the Bible says, mixed multitudes. God wasn't just saying, I don't care about you Egyptians. Die, die, die. That's not what he was saying. If Egyptians were willing to join Israel, they too could be protected. Though most of them obviously didn't. Second, God had the Jews. Are you ready for this? Remember when we read it? He had them eat the lamb. So what's that all about? Isn't it enough for the lamb to die? Bad enough the lamb has to die. But then he says you have to eat the lamb. Why? I want you to think about this. Eating symbolizes union with the one who bore the sacrifice. When we eat food, it becomes a part of our being. 
Now do you understand why Jesus said what he did in John 6 about eating, drinking his blood and eating his flesh? He wasn't talking about some sort of sacramental eating. He was talking about appropriating him by faith. In other words, it's not enough just to have sort of an intellectual pondering. Oh, isn't that something? Hmm. A lamb was shed. A lamb's blood was shed. Wow, that's really amazing. That's a powerful symbol. Now, I don't want to have really any part to do with that because that's kind of grotesque. But it's a really interesting symbol. Well, that's not God's intention. You actually have to become part of this. You actually have to eat the lamb, which is symbolic of appropriating this lamb, of doing it God's way, of exercising faith in God's plan. That's what it was all about. And third, God had the Jews smear the lamb's blood on the door. What's that all about? To make a public, visible testimony of the faith of that house's occupants. That's why the Bible says in verse 13 that we read there, it's a sign. It's a sign. In other words, salvation isn't a private matter. It's not a secret matter. There's something analogous in the New Covenant. We're going to do one of those things in just a couple minutes. Another one is baptism. You say, well, in my heart I know I trusted Jesus and that is the only thing. No, 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 it's not the only thing. You see, salvation is not just a matter, not just a matter between you and God. There also has to be a visible demonstration. I'm trusting in Jesus Christ. Given my, I've given my life to him. And he wants people to know this. He wants people to know this. And that's why baptism and communion are very visible and very public. So everybody can see, oh, we saw this person baptized. Oh, this person does take communion. This person is visibly a Christian. At Passover, the blood on the doors let everybody know the Jews believed in God's way of salvation. We're doing it God's way. That's what that was saying. We're doing it God's way. Now this then leads to the main point. Why do we call this Passover? Because there's the greatest significance to God's passing over the house. Because he sees the blood and then he passes over. Now, this is most striking. It's vital. Why did God want to stress this with Israel and with us? Because sin has to be judged before we can be saved. And if we're not to be judged ourselves, we have to have a substitute. The death of the Lamb is the only protection from God's judgment. And there is no other way. Now, we can call this something. Sacrificial atonement. Substitutionary atonement. It was payment for sin by substitution. The Passover lamb was sacrificed. Now we know from the New Testament that the Passover wasn't God's, this Old Testament Passover, wasn't God's final definitive way of salvation. It pointed to something else. Whom did it point to? It pointed to Jesus Christ. Paul explicitly says that. Jesus is our Passover. He says it in 1 Corinthians 5-7. Did you know that every Sunday when Don or I leads communion, when we go through that litany of response, Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. That's in the Bible. Did you know that? We're just quoting the Bible. John the Baptist said, Jesus Christ is the Lamb of God that takes away the world's sin. Peter tells us Christians are bought with the precious blood of Christ, a Lamb without blemish, without spot. And then you read the book of Revelation. You read the book of Revelation. Again and again, who does John describe Jesus as? I looked and I saw a Lamb. 
I was just reading them again yesterday. Again and again and again, all these references in Revelation. Passover pointed to Jesus, who is our Passover lamb. All of our sins were laid on him. And on the cross, God poured out his judgment on his son in our place. Just as the Passover lamb was killed to spare the Jews, so Jesus Christ was killed on the cross to spare us. And if Jesus Christ did not suffer on the cross and die for our sins, we, all of us, would be awaiting God's judgment in hell. Salvation is by the shedding of blood, and there is simply no other way. Does everybody understand that? Now, theological liberals, you've heard of some of these folks, deny substitutionary atonement. The story that happened, I think, was it last year or the year before? Uh, in the uh, increasingly liberal Presbyterian Church of the United States. It's called the PCUSA. They were producing a new hymnal, and uh, they dropped the great uh, hymn, In Christ Alone, from their new hymnal. You know that song that we sing, In Christ Alone? little controversy. In fact, it was all over the major news. <coughs> there was one line in that hymnal, and that hymn, rather, that was going to be included in the hymnal, but wasn't. There was one line that was very offensive to them, and it's this line in that song that we sing. On that cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. They objected to that line. They asked the authors, one of them, Stuart Townsend, famous and God-fearing hymn writer, modern hymn writer. They said, could we change that last line to the love of that line was to the love of God was magnified. The love of God was magnified. And uh, Stuart and his co-writer said, thank you very much, but no, you may not. And the hymn wasn't included. Of course the cross magnifies the love of God. But it magnifies his love by showing he was willing to sacrifice his own son on the cross in order to meet the terms of his justice. His wrath against sin was satisfied on the cross. By the way, there's no greater magnification of the love of God than that. And that's why the liberal view is so disgraceful. It's an attack on the love of God. And that's how much God the Father loved us. He sent His own precious Son to die on the cross in our place. Suffering His own wrath, Jesus Christ. Suffering His Father's wrath for our sin. If we don't have substitutionary atonement, we've lost an indispensable part of the gospel. Jesus is our Passover lamb. The shedding of the blood is the way that God saves sinners, and there's no other way. So much for the Passover and its truths for today. Now what about its truths concerning household salvation? This won't be as long. The Jews were to take, in verse 3, did you notice? The Jews were to take a lamb for every house or household. Now, that's really interesting, really noteworthy. Now, why didn't God just call a great big convocation, that is a great big meeting, and have several lambs killed? There wouldn't be anything intrinsically wrong with that. It would still be substitutionary atonement. Or maybe have all individuals get their own lamb and kill their own lamb. He could have done that. But he didn't. He said, let's get a lamb for a house, a household. Why did he do that? Because he was showing symbolically that he's interested in household redemption. It's so precious. The Puritans were fond of saying this. This is one of my favorite little aphorisms. 
The old Puritans would say this, God cast the lines of election in the loins of godly parents. Now, he didn't mean by that, they didn't mean by that, children born into Christian families are like automatically saved. Oh, you're born into a Christian family. We don't have to tell you the gospel. You're already saved. That's not what they meant. That's a dangerous presumption. Children from Christian families have to put their trust in Jesus Christ like everyone else does. However, God's focus in redemption starts, never ends, but it starts in Christian families. And that's why Peter stated in the first Pentecost. Do you remember Peter's sermon? After Jesus' resurrection, he said, The gospel promise is to you and to your children. That's why we're reading the book of Acts. So-and-so was saved and baptized. And then there's a little expression, three words, and his or their house. And that's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, uh, 7, 14, your children, believers, are holy. Holy there means set apart. Even if they have just one Christian parent, even if there's just one Christian parent, isn't that just wonderful? God cast the lines of election in the loins of godly parents. And you'll notice, this is so precious. You'll notice God told Moses, if the house is too small for the lamb, they share it with another one. You have our lamb here, and look at all this meat. The blood is shed, and there's all this meat. There's like going to be extra. God says, you go over to your neighbor. Hey, Charlie Goldberg. Nice Jewish name. Hey, Charlie Goldberg. Don't kill your lamb. We've killed this lamb here, and we're going to share it with you. So that there's just enough. In other words, the house may be too small for the lamb, but the lamb is never too small for the house. Isn't that amazing? The blood of Jesus Christ is always sufficient for the entire household. God wanted to make sure every single person in the household benefited from that lamb. In other words, God's intention is that every person in that household should be redeemed. Now, God's way of household salvation really should encourage us. It should raise our expectations. It should comfort us when our spouses or children are drifting from the faith. Now, look at it this way. Look at it this way. Even if there's only one single Christian parent in the family, everybody in that family stands in a privileged position before God. You say, does the Bible really teach that? Yeah, yeah, it does. I didn't say they're automatically saved. I said everyone stands in a privileged position. Paul says that in 1 Corinthians 7, 14. Let me read it for you now. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife. Now, made holy there doesn't mean they're automatically saved. Holy in the Bible often means just set apart, sanctified, set apart for the Lord's special use. The unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife. And the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. Isn't that just amazing? When there's even one believer in the household, God sets these ones apart and says, you know, they have a privileged position. Now that means that children in Christian families are not on the same footing as children in non-Christian families. Now I know that's not popular in an age of equality, but that's what the Bible teaches. They're not in the same position. Our children are granted a privileged position. They're members of God's visible covenant body. They hear the word of God taught at home and at church. They're instructed in the gospel and in the faith. 
They hear their parents and their pastor and their church teachers and often school teachers pour out their hearts before God. They are so privileged because they have very close contact with the things of God. And by the way, that's why it's so tragic when Christian young people turn their back on God and depart from the faith. They have had so many privileges. It's an act almost un of unforgivable ingratitude when they throw these precious Christian jewels before the swine of the world. But even when our children drift from the gospel, we have God's promises. We know that they haven't forgotten all that God placed in them. We know that God still privileges them. If your children are drifting, remind God of his covenant promises and remind your children of their covenant privileges. Let me repeat that. Remind God of his covenant promises and remind your children of their covenant privileges. Meanwhile, nourish the lambs in the gospel. Now I use that expression a lot. What do I mean by it? I mean you should surround and suffocate your children with the things of God. When they get up in the morning, remind them of God's goodness. Remind them of God's creation. Remind them of the cross. Remind them of the resurrection. Play good Christian music in the house. Remind them that the Bible is God's precious word. Read the Bible to them. As they get older, have them read it for themselves. Go to a church that helps buy them Bibles. Spend time praying with them. Pray for specific things. And when God answers prayer, give God the glory. This will increase their faith. Keep them in God's house. This is God's chosen community, and they need to grow up in this gospel community. In this community, your children are near also to God's covenant sacraments, baptism and communion. Christians who consistently pull their children out of church for some other activities are teaching their children that those other activities are more important than the house of God. This is very bad teaching, and it's very dangerous teaching. Amen, Reverend Sandlin. Almost everything in our contemporary culture wars against almost everything that we, children, we Christians hold dear. Therefore, nothing less than nourishing these lambs in the gospel at every point, suffocating these lambs in the gospel, will suffice. When God at that first Passover, when he commanded a lamb for a house, he was laying down the terms of household salvation. We dare not deviate from those terms. Let me review and I'll be done. There can be no redemption apart from sacrificial or substitutionary atonement. In the Old Testament, lambs and goats had to die to avert God's judgment. But they were only a temporary atonement. They pointed to the one and final definitive atonement. Jesus, our Passover. Trusting in the crucified and risen Lord alone is the only way of salvation. And then God's plan is a lamb for a household. That means the substitutionary atonement that I just talked about a second ago is designed first for the Christian family. We should live in the expectation that God wants to save everyone in our house. And we should act on that expectation by nourishing the lambs in the gospel. Remember this. God cast the lines of election in the loins of godly parents. Let us pray. I'm going to have Matt Masaryk pray a prayer of dedication for us.